I may have said this before, but uh, it bears repeating that I find that preaching is much more of an event for me than it used to be, and I, I think I understand why. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, I'm, I'm grateful for the, uh, the privilege of uh, ministering to you this morning. I, uh, I recognize uh, Dave and the leadership team's uh, graciousness in uh, uh, allowing me to uh, share with you the, uh, from the last part of the Book of Romans uh, in these several months. Um, uh, as, as you remember, if you remember, that uh, we, uh, beginning at the 12th chapter of Romans, we, Paul begins to uh, speak uh, about practical things of the Christian life and he calls us to total and full commitment and total consecration to God in the first two verses. And uh, we've looked at that, and, and we have uh, looked at how that uh, uh, in the first five verses, there are four prerequisites important to finding and filling our place in the body of Christ. And then uh, the, uh, the last time that I uh, ministered to you, uh, had to do with uh, verses 6 and 8 all the way through verse 13 uh, in relation to the spiritual gifts that God has endowed us with for the upbuilding of the body of Christ so that we can be an effective vessel in communicating the gospel to a lost and dying world. I believe that is the ultimate purpose. Now, this morning, I'm going to be uh, looking at it, and I'm entitling uh, this message, our relationship with those that are within, without. And uh, this comes from uh, beginning at verse 14 in, uh, in Romans chapter 12. And I'm taking it all the way through the end of Romans uh, chapter 13. So, uh, but, uh, so allow me to, uh, first of all, just read that portion uh, in Romans 12, beginning at... Uh, at, at verse um, uh, 14. Romans 12, beginning at verse 14. Bless them that which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man, evil for evil, providing things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, Feed him, if he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Our relationship with those that are without. Uh, it is uh, obvious that our practical daily lives, to a great extent, consist of relationships. Uh, relationships on three levels, as we see it here in Romans chapter 12. 
First of all, our relationship with the age we live in, the fallen culture in which we live, which Paul addressed in Romans chapter uh, 12 and verse 2. And then our relationship with those within the church, within the body of Christ, uh, uh, as uh, from Romans chapter th uh, 12, verses 3 through 13. And now our relationship with those without, uh, with our, uh, our Christian, non-Christian neighbors and friends. I, I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit doesn't let any area of our lives any, any of our relationships unaddressed here. And so he does so here very specifically. And uh, in this passage, uh, going on through uh, verse, uh, chapter uh, 13, he uh, addresses our relationship with, to those that are without. First of all, in the, uh, the last part of, uh, the, uh, of chapter 12, uh, our relationship with our non-Christian friends and neighbors, and then in the second part, our relationship with, our, with civil government. Um, so beginning here at verse four, 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 14, Paul begins to speak to us about how to relate to those without. And uh, I admit that he does so very abruptly. He switches, as I see it, from uh, talking about our relationship with my brother in the church to our relationship in verse 14 with those who are uh, not our brothers and sisters, but those who are our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Or at least I, I, uh, I trust that we see that verse 14 somehow doesn't fit uh, as it relates to our relationship within the body of Christ because uh, we should not be persecuting one another, as I see it. Any amens to that? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, but it seems that Paul uh, switches here uh, his focus very, very uh, uh, directly here. And, um, and so uh, I want us to see that uh, these responses that Paul calls us to uh, are for the purpose of ministering the gospel to those who are antagonistic toward us and not just for the purpose of preserving ourselves. So uh, how, how should we relate to our non-Christian friends and neighbors around us? Verses 14 through 18 uh, and uh, actually all the way through verse 21. Um, you know, we, we believe that uh, as followers of Christ that we should live differently than the non-Christian world around us. I've been saying that often in the uh, last several times that I've uh, ministered to you. Uh, we also believe that there should be a distinct fundamental difference between the values uh, and the lifestyle of us as Christians and our unsaved neighbors and friends uh, that uh, we uh, relate to uh, day by day. This doesn't mean, however, that we should live antagonistically uh, with our non-Christian neighbor. Uh, I believe this means that we should live in peace with our non-Christian neighbor as much as is possible and be a witness of Christ to them. 
Notice uh, verse 18, Paul says, As much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. And I believe that includes our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Uh, and it seems to me that verses 14 and through 18 instructs us uh, very uh, uh, practically, in a sense, uh, how to do that. Uh, and so let me notice six things uh, real quickly here. I, 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 I don't want to spend a lot of time in the last part of chapter 12. I, I do want to, most of my focus is going to be in chapter 13. But notice six things here as it relates to this matter of uh, relating to our friends and neighbors in a way that we can be a, a witness and a testimony to them. So we should overcome their animosity, first of all, verse 14, by being kind and friendly toward them. Uh, it seems to me that is our first instruction. Um, secondly, we should have empathy with them when life throws difficulties in their pathway. Verse 15. Um, in, uh, in Northwestern Ontario, we had the opportunity to do this by doing uh, many funerals, a time when, when people were hurting and, uh, and yes, suffering uh, within themselves and, uh, we, because of, of death and, uh, and tragedies that came into their lives. And so we, we took that opportunity to, uh, to minister to them and to, uh, uh, yes, to minister to them during the, those particular times. Um, and verse 16, I believe, tells us that we should place ourselves on the same level with them. Don't have an attitude of superiority uh, toward them. This goes a long ways in breaking down barriers between us and them. Uh, then number four, return good for evil. Uh, without a show of religiosity or a holier-than-thou attitude. Uh, it's not always easy to do, but uh, we're called to do that. Um, also, number five, be upfront and straightforward without being belligerent toward them. I've discovered that uh, you can do that uh, in, uh, in, in ministering the gospel to them, uh, sharing with them uh, their need and for, for Jesus. Uh, you can be very straightforward, uh, addressing them and reminding them that they're sinners in need of, of a savior. So uh, be straightforward, be upfront and straightforward without being belligerent uh, in any, any kind of way. And then number six, go the second mile in living peacefully alongside of them. I could tell you some stories about this, but I'm not going to take, you, take the time to do so. Uh, and then it seems that in verses 19 through 21, uh, Paul uh, uh, teaches us and, ex and exhorts us how to respond to persecution especially, uh, or when you are mistreated or taken advantage of. Uh, we really know so little about this in, in, here in the <coughs> United States of America. But he, he does, uh, these instructions uh, come from what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Notice what Paul says. Avenge not yourselves. 
Don't take justice in your own hands. Let that in the hand of God. Uh, this reminds us that uh, it's not in our place to attempt to bring justice when life and people bring pain into our lives. In the meantime, life is always not, not always fair, and, uh, and cruel men will get away with great evil and wrongdoing in this life. In the, in the meantime, just guard your heart from any kind of bitterness. Um, and then uh, give place to wrath. Uh, let God settle the accounts when you're mistreated. For one day, God will right every wrong and bring every wrongdoer to justice. When he does it, he will do it right. So just uh, let God do it. And thirdly, return good for evil. Uh, meet any need that uh, you, you, those who make life difficult for you, any need they might have, food, drink, acts of kindness, etc. Because such acts of kindness have the potential to prick their conscience. Overcome good with evil. Uh, and, uh, you know, granted that uh, these are not easy admonitions to follow, but uh, when you really think about it, they are, they do take us into the footsteps of Jesus because that's the way he responded to those who were antagonistic toward him and persecuted him. Now, um, I'm going to spend most of my time looking at what Paul tells us about our relationship with, uh, with uh, our civil government. And it's still referring to our relationship with those that are without, uh, outside of our, our, the fellowship of the body of Christ. Uh, and so um, uh, here Paul addresses this in, the, uh, in, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. So if you would stand with me, I'd like to read this entire chapter and then uh, address it uh, specifically. Beginning at verse 1 in Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. <coughs> Excuse me. For for this cause pay tr ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore uh, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth and another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now, it is, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. You may be seated. You know, the, uh, the question might be asked as we look at this passage. Uh, why does Paul address this subject here in the practical section of the book of Romans? Well, I, I believe that uh, in order to uh, understand why Paul addresses this subject, we need to understand the, uh, the relationship uh, of the church in Rome to the Roman Empire during, during the first century. Um, we, uh, you know, the, the pagan Roman Empire barely tolerated the followers of Christ in their midst during this particular time, especially in the city of Rome, the capital city of the empire. Whenever persecution broke out, in, in, uh, in the, the first century against the church. The church in Rome uh, got the brunt of it. Uh, they got it first of all because they were living right in the capital city of the, uh, of the empire of the world. I also believe that we need to understand um, the, uh, the Roman government um, what kind of government that uh, uh, they were living under during this particular time. Um, the, uh, the Roman government was a republican form of government. It was one of the first in the history of the world, in the history of the four world empires, uh, to be a republican form of government. Uh, true, it was an early and a crude form of, uh, uh, of the Republican form of government, uh, but uh, it, it certainly had some similarities to our own uh, here in, uh, in America. Uh, the, the genius of the, of the Roman government was that it was built on a body of law, basically, that was considered one of, to be one of the great legislative achievements of its time. If you uh, read historians, you'll see that. 
It basically had three branches of government, much like our own here in the United States and in England and other democracies. Uh, there was the legislative branch, uh, there was the judicial branch, and there was the executive branch of government. And these three worked to sort of balance, uh, balance things out. It, uh, it didn't always uh, work that way, but that was the, the way it was uh, intended to work. See, the Roman government conquest of the Mediterranean world uh, brought law and order uh, to, the, uh, to, to uh, the Mediterranean basin uh, on land and on sea that made it safe for its citizens. It was called Pax Romana. Uh, you know, the, uh, and the Republican, uh, Roman Republican form of government became the, uh, the, um, uh, the, it became the, the, the pattern, if I, if I could call it that, um, from which came our own modern uh, form of democracy. And so, uh, just so we have a little bit of a grasp, and true, it was much cruder than our uh, modern form of Republican government, but uh, still, it was there. And so, uh, uh, that's the form of government that, uh, the, that the Roman Empire had at this particular time. So, uh, uh, Paul addresses then the question, uh, how should the Christian relate to with civil government uh, in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 13? Um, there seem to be several reasons why Paul would address the subject as to what the believer's attitude and relationship should be toward civil government. And I, I believe it's, uh, it's, it's current for us today. Uh, so, uh, first of all, uh, but we, we have to remember that the political climate in Rome was, was uh, fickle and uncertain during this particular time. Nero had become the emperor of Rome, AD 54. Uh, the, the Book of Romans was written about three years later. Uh, and he was an unstable and self-indulgent tyrant. About seven years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, A.D. 64, Christians were going to die at the hands of Nero in very cruel ways. Uh, that was the year that 19, uh, 1964, uh, not even 2064, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, A.D. 64 was the year that, that Rome burned. And um, historians are still debating whether uh, Nero himself didn't set the fires that burned Rome. Um, but um, Nero uh, pushed the blame over onto the Christians. And so uh, he began to uh, persecute the Christians and put them to death in very cruel ways. Uh, one of the things he did, he would tie them to poles in his uh, garden and uh, pour pitch over them and light them as torches to light up his garden at nighttime. Uh, 
In fact, about 10 years after Paul wrote this, he himself would be beheaded shortly before Nero himself committed suicide in AD 68. So in view of this fickle political climate of the day, I believe Paul felt compelled here in Romans 13 to give direction to the Christians in Rome what their attitude should be towards civil government. But the other thing that took place, I believe this uh, figures into uh, why Paul uh, wrote this, is that the, uh, the Jewish population of, of Rome, which was quite large, they, they sort of lived together in, in one cluster in, uh, in the city of Rome. But the Jewish population had been exiled and banished from the city of Rome about 10 years earlier during the time of Claudius, Claudius the, the emperor, because the Jews had rioted against the Roman government for some reason. Um, and so because the Jewish Christians were not differentiated from other Jews, they also were banished with the rest of the Jewish population at that particular time. You read about this in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. And uh, that is why Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, who were, who, were, who, lived, who were part of the church in Rome. But they had to leave because they were Jewish. And uh, in, they went to Corinth. That's where Paul met them. Uh, so there was no doubt a lot of uncertainty among the believers how they should respond <coughs> to civil authority. What should be our attitude toward uh, civil government, the government of Rome? And uh, so here, here we have it, and Paul addresses this particular uh, matter, and so he gives important instructions about how Christians should respond and relate to uh, secular government. And it, it is timeless. Uh, these instructions in Romans chapter 13 are timeless in, uh, in its application to us today. Now, I, I recognize that uh, working my way through this section is not going to be highly exciting stuff. Um, you're going to tend to fall asleep on me uh, because, uh, you know, sort of ho-hum. <laughs> uh, well, um, but I, I am impelled to give exposition to this section uh, nevertheless because it is the Word of God, and I believe it does give us important instruction uh, as it relates to our relationship with the government, our civil authorities, the state, uh, as uh, we have it here in the United States as well. So here Paul helps us get a proper perspective on the authority civil government has over us. You will notice that in the first three verses of, uh, <coughs> of, of chapter 13, that Paul uh, uses the word power or powers five different times. He talks about uh, the higher powers. He talks about the powers that be. And, uh, and so uh, uh, here 
I, I just want to remind us that uh, the word power here, as it's used in this particular section, is actually the word authority. Um, and uh, also I have to say that there are two uh, meanings or two ways to, uh, two words uh, in Greek to talk about authority. When the scriptures speak of absolute authority, then he uses the word kratos. And it, it uses it in relation to God. <coughs> because God is the only one who has absolute authority. In fact, uh, absolute authority is, uh, is only safe in the, in the hands of God and not in the hands of man. God never gives absolute authority over to any man or any system or any, whether it be government or whatever it might be. It's never absolute authority. It's always delegated authority. Um, and that's the word is used here five times, uh, the word for delegated authority. Um, authority that is, uh, uh, that is uh, uh, not absolute, but is, uh, uh, is delegated by God for a particular purpose. And so uh, I want us to understand that. Delegated authority is limited authority. It can only be rightly exercised under God's absolute authority and according, according to his divine mandates. And so that's what we have here uh, in, in Paul's use of the word power, the powers that be, etc., <coughs> five times in the first five verses. Um, now, I told you, you might go to sleep on this. Um, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, sleep well. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is stuff that you already know. I know that. But I'm, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm plowing my way through here uh, to uh, help us uh, get a fresh look at our own relationship with civil government. So the first thing that Paul says, uh, there are two things uh, uh, to the implication that all governmental authority is a delegated authority and it's limited authority. And so uh, there, there are two things that Paul says about this. And that is, this means then that the powers that be are ordained of God. That's verse 1. Um, again, the point is that authority that the government of this world exercises on its citizens is, uh, is delegated authority. Authority given to them by God. And we understand, according to Psalm 2, that uh, God exercises absolute authority and sovereign authority over the nations in ways that are uh, unique and for his glory. 
But so the powers that be are ordained of God. This means that civil government does not have absolute power or authority. Um, Jesus had an interesting little conversation with Pilate on this very matter in John chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, when uh, Jesus was before Pilate and the, uh, the chief priests were making all kinds of accusations and, and, uh, and, and Jesus wasn't saying a word. And Pilate finally said, in, in my own words, why don't you say something? Don't you know that I have power over you to execute you or to let you go? And Jesus said, you have no power except that which is given to you of God. That was a powerful statement. And Pilate should have taken note of it. But he sort of let it pass by. He still thought that he had absolute authority to do what was expedient of the day. So the powers that be are ordained of God. Secondly, it means to resist rulers, as he tells us in verse 3, or governor, governments is to resist God then when they are ruling properly. That's verse 2. You see, being civil government has a, a divine mandate to rule over the people makes breaking the laws of the land and civil disobedience a serious matter. <coughs> Um, that doesn't mean that we might never come to the place where we might have to make a choice and exercise civil disobedience. But that's not, that's not the norm here. Um, you know, the fact that the state gets its mandate to rule from God doesn't mean that the church and the state are one because each have their distinct mandate. Uh, yes, we are strong believers in the fact that church and state are separate. But as Montgomery Boyce put it, this doesn't mean the separation of God and state. <laughs> because, uh, as I indicated, it is God who exercises sovereignty over the nations and over civil government after all, when everything is said and done. Um, so consequently, Paul says that to resist civil rulers is to, is to resist God. We understand this to be a qualified statement, as I indicated, but I'm going to uh, just address that a little bit later again. And then in verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul, God, Paul gives God's purpose and mandate for civil government. First of all, the purpose of civil government is control rampant evil in sinful society. Government rulers are to be a terror to those who perpetuate evil. Uh, <coughs> you know, the rule of law, um, the threat of punishment, doesn't solve the problem of evil. Only the gospel uh, takes care of that problem. But it should be such that it strikes fear, the fear of consequences in lawbreakers so that evil in society is controlled. Uh, that's what comes through here in verses 3 and 4. 
Uh, and so the, uh, the, the purpose and mandate for civil government, as far as God is concerned, is, that, is to protect law-abiding citizens. That's verse 4. Um, to me, the implication of this is that we as Christians should have access to the protection of the law. Uh, so it's okay to call the police when you need them for protection, as far as I understand it. Um, you know, our Western democracies up to this point have done a relatively good job in, in doing this very thing. Thirdly, verses 3 and 4, out of 3 and 4, uh, the, the government is intended to control and punish evil by use of the force of law. I, I sort of indicated that already. But civil authorities are to execute wrath, use punishment upon him that does evil. It bears not the sword in vain, implies that the use of capital punishment in the administering of justice, <coughs> whenever, especially when there is the shedding of innocent blood, should be used. Um, there's, of course, much that could be said and debated about that, but I'm just going to leave that. And, but then uh, Paul, in verses 5 through 7 of this passage, uh, reminds us of uh, our responsibility to civil government. The Christian's responsibility to civil government. Uh, you're still with me? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm plotting. <laughs> um, and so the first, thing, the first thing he says in verse 5 is be subject to those authorities. Uh, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, civil authority, because they are ordained of God. And by not submitting to these secular powers, you are in essence not obeying or submitting yourself to God. And may I emphasize that to be subject to governmental authorities means to honor and obey them whenever possible. And you should do so not out of fear of punishment, but for conscience sake. You know, an interesting thing happens when you honor and subject yourself to those in authority over you. You know, an example of that was that when we were building our retirement home and uh, from 2005 to 2006, I, I was taught, I was, uh, I was told by a local builder that uh, there are three, three inspectors. Uh, there are three county insp building inspectors uh, in, in Falkir County. And uh, two of them are good, and uh, one of them is mean. Uh, and so I wondered who the mean one was. Uh, you know, the interesting thing was I never discovered who the mean one was. Because I determined in the building of our house that I would do things according to the building code. And so when the inspectors would come out, I would ask them questions. How do I do this? What do you expect to be done here? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, by the time everything was done, I never found out who the mean inspector was. I'm sure he was there. <laughs> but... Uh, I didn't, I didn't find out who he was. And so uh, there's something to uh, submitting yourself to uh, civil authority uh, that is uh, really to our good.
painfully, uh, in verse 6 and 7, Paul says we should pay tribute, and that means pay your taxes. Um, you know, um, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this. I, I believe that all of us uh, pay our taxes, or at least we believe we should. Um, but uh, pay tribute simply means pay your taxes. And it's not your responsibility how those taxes are going to be used. When Jesus addressed that subject to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, uh, as he looked at the, the, the coin, the Roman coin, he said, uh, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And you're not responsible how what you give to Caesar is used by Caesar. So Paul here is in agreement with that and says, pay your taxes. And then he tells us in verse 6 to properly honor and respect governmental authorities. And uh, in, in that in verse 6. Well, um, so uh, my, my question that I want to address, which uh, I alluded to earlier, is, uh, you know, uh, the, that, and you're aware of the fact that there, there are two kingdoms uh, in this world. There are the kingdoms of the world. And uh, all, of the, all of the governments of the world, not excluded, are part of the kingdom of this world. Um, and so, uh, yes, um, I, uh, you know, regardless, uh, that, that's true. Uh, I'm going to make a statement here that might shock some of you, but uh, let me say it this way, that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. You think it's true. Well, I know there are nations that, uh, that, that uh, uh, use, exercise Christian principles in the way it uh, uh, exercises its rule and authority, and that's good. But when it really comes down to it, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Uh, the uh, United States of America has never been and will never be a Christian nation. It's part of the kingdom of this world. Always has been from the very get-go and will be to the final end. But there's a second kingdom, and that is the spiritual kingdom. It's, it's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus called it. And, uh, and so there are two kingdoms. And so we are part of two kingdoms. We're, and as it relates to earthly government, we're part of the kingdom of this world. Um, not an integral part. But we're here, and Paul says we are to be subject to them. Uh, but but our, our ultimate, our ultimate uh, uh, loyalty is to the kingdom of God. And so when there is a clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, what do we do? 
Uh, and uh, what do we do if, our, if, if as, as Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man? You see, the, the kingdom of, part of the kingdom of this world said to Peter, you, you, you're not supposed to preach in the name of Jesus from this point on. And Peter said, you decide whether one should obey God rather than man. And that was the tough choice that Peter had to make. And sometimes, I grant that not very often in our lifetime, but it might happen more in the, in the, in the future, that there's, there's, uh, there's going to be a clash, there, there are going to be no, uh, um, uh, a clash, and there continues to be a clash between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And our absolute loyalty and obedience is required to the kingdom of God. And so if the kingdom of this world asks us to do something that, that conflicts with the ethics of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, what do we do? Well, that's when kingdoms clash. And so... Uh, we have to make a choice. Um, oh, there, there's really quite a bit I'd like to say and clarify about all of that. But I, uh, but I just need to um, bring this to a conclusion. Um, and so Paul, in uh, verses 8 through 14, uh, gives us the duties of citizenship. Uh, it says, love your neighbors. That's the one duty. <clears throat> and then the uh, second thing that he says is that uh, in verses 11, that's verses 8 through 10. And then the second thing he says it's verses 11 through 14. Now, uh, I, I, as I was, now I've been working my way through uh, for a number of years uh, this passage. And, you know, I've often come to verse 11. And I said, why is this, uh, why is verse 11 through 14 in this section? Uh, uh, allow me to attempt to clarify why that is here. Uh, let me read that section. Will you give me a couple more minutes? Um, verses 11 through uh, 14. Knowing, that, knowing this time that now is, it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to uh, uh, enjoy the pleasures thereof, uh, my translation. Why is this section here as a part of this uh, admonition, uh, this, uh, uh, 
exposition on our relationship with our civil government. Well, um, it is, uh, let, let, me, let me say it this way. I, in essence, I hear Paul saying that the best way to respond to the times you're living in, whether you're, whether you're responding to the good times, a time of wealth and prosperity, or whether you are, uh, need to respond to the difficult times when you're persecuted and uh, uh, misused and abused by civil authorities. In both cases, what's the best way to respond? And, and I, I, would, <laughs> I would like to call us to this response this morning. Because as I hear what Paul is saying here is that the, the, it, is, it, is, it is imperative that, uh, that we hear this call to spiritual alertness. Um, I hear Paul saying that the best way to respond is by living all out for Jesus. It's not a time for compromise. It's not a time for living a life. It's a time for living a life of total commitment to God. It's time to live as though uh, Jesus was coming back soon. You see, the darker the night, the brighter your light needs to shine. So this is a call to spiritual alertness. So be aware of the times we're living in, the moral and spiritual condition of the age that we're living in. Live in the awareness that the return of Christ is at hand, our, our final salvation is, is near. The night is far spent. The eternal day is about to dawn. So cast off any works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Deal with any sin in your life. Don't be lulled into complacency. It's not a time for compromise, as I said. It's not a time to give in to the spirit of the age. Live lives that are transparent. On, live honestly as in the day. Don't absorb the values of the age you're living in. Live counterculturally. I hear Paul saying all of this in, this in this final call. It's a call to total commitment to Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't coddle the flesh, your sinful propensities. Be overcomers. Live victorious Christian life, whether in a time of peace and prosperity or in a time of difficulty. That's the best way to respond to the situation that we find ourselves in. Living this kind of dynamic Christian life is what Jesus, after all, calls us to in, 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 in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 13 and 14, part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, be a light to the world and be a salt to the earth. That's what we're called to, uh, Paul says, in this last section of Romans chapter 13. God bless you as you consider that.